2: This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Direct Appeal.
3: Well, I went and sat in his office, and that's basically when he told me they're probably going to charge me with murder. She's crying, and she said Sarah died last night. Well, I mean, everybody just wanted answers.
1: They had a person on trial for murder, and they had no earthly idea of what actually happened. Three
0: days after the first autopsy, a second autopsy is performed by a very prominent pathologist named Werner Spitz. He was
1: a little difficult to understand because he had a thick German accent. They were impressed. They were not impressed with him. Dr.
0: Eptogro's explanation of why he is not board certified doesn't make very much sense to me, but that doesn't mean that he is not qualified.
3: I had no clue really what I was doing. He was
1: always sleepy. He would always fall asleep at random things, which is kind of odd for a young person.
2: This is Episode 7, The Jury's Duty. Last time we heard the defense's case and left off with jury deliberations. On this episode, we have the verdict. It was around 8.30 p.m. the day after jury deliberations began when the verdict came in. The jury walked in but did not look at Ryan. What do you think that means, Amy, if they don't look? I don't think that's a good sign. No. This is all subjective, like we say, but Mm -hmm. if they're not looking at him, it's more indicative to me of guilt because they don't want to look him in the eye.
4: I think you're right. I don't think there's any empirical studies on it, but anecdotally, I think that's correct.
2: Anecdotally, I agree.
4: But what did the jury find? Well, as
2: to count one aggravated murder, the jury found Ryan not guilty. And at this point, Ryan cried out and the courtroom cheered, which was very indicative of the support for Ryan then. But that's not the end of the story because there's count two, and that's murder. And on this count, the jury found Ryan guilty.
4: Okay, so this sounds a little confusing. It because- does. Every state defines first degree, second degree manslaughter. Everything's defined differently by state. So in Ohio, aggravated murder, it's also called first degree murder. That is obviously the most serious type of homicide because that is premeditated and purposeful. So Ryan was found not guilty. However, he was found guilty Of murder, and as a practical matter, second degree murder is referred to as just murder in Ohio. Mm -hmm. So, murder in the second degree, or simply murder in Ohio, is the intentional killing of someone. So, it is purposeful, but it is not premeditated or
2: planned. Got it. You know, what's interesting. I've had debates about this, too. When we talk about premeditated, how long do we count as premeditated? Because sometimes premeditation could be, you know, we're thinking of the wow. quintessential mm-hmm. case mm-hmm. where someone's planned this out for weeks or months. But what if you've
4: planned it out for five minutes? Like, what's the differentiator here? So unlike voluntary manslaughter, murder is not committed in the heat of passion. Ah. So the heat, of it's like that timing, heat of passion. The reason I think that the jury went this way is they believe that, Sarah was in the bathtub. Ryan maybe wasn't planning this for days, but maybe they had an argument and then he was pissed off and he did it. But Mm -hmm. not heat of passion in the sense that they were in a domestic dispute maybe and there was already pushing and then he did it.
2: And heat of passion cases are also like the quintessential when you walk in on someone and they're like in bed with someone else and you're just triggered
4: immediately. An immediate trigger, yes. But again, there, there are some differences by state, but generally I would say that's correct. As often as the case in high stakes trials, the reading of the verdict
2: was very emotional.
1: I can tell you, being there was absolutely unforgettable. It was one of the most powerful experiences of my life. I can never think of another time where things changed like that. The judge said that Ryan was acquitted of aggravated murder, the most serious charge he faced. And you literally could hear. And feel a sigh of relief where people were just, ah, oh, because the courtroom was filled with Ryan's quarters. But then the judge put up his hand and said, no, wait a minute. He read the second verdict on the lesser charge of straight murder. And when he said guilty, this sense of joy and relief just Automatically turned into grief and wailing like out loud and crying. And one of Ryan's relatives flung open the door to the courtroom and was screaming, Small town justice, and this isn't right. And it was, and people were shaking. I was shaking. I was shaking so badly that I couldn't even type very well at all to try to send a message to my editor just so she could send out a tweet that said guilty. It was a, a pressure cooker that just let loose. It, it was like a lightning struck ferocity of that whole experience. I'll never forget it.
2: Ryan also discusses how he felt when the verdict was read.
3: And I'll never forget, even, you know, because my mom was still alive at the time. And when they, when they actually said the jury was back, it was real ominous just thunderstorm from rolling in. It was kind of ironic. It just added to everything that didn't feel right. And then, um, when uh, we went in, you know, when he told me to stand and he was going to read the verdicts and then he read off the charge of aggravated murder and found me not guilty. They found me not guilty of that. So, obviously, I was relieved, but I knew, you know, obviously, the, the lesser charge they had was this murder.
0: And,
3: you know, he read that off and then ended up, obviously, reading guilty on that. And I just, I mean, just like it, hitting the stomach with a sledgehammer. I mean, it was horrible. I knew there was a possibility, but... Just being my first time mixed in, mixed up in the judicial system, I'm like, well, no, they can't find find somebody guilty of something they didn't do. Kind of, perp- I tried to prepare myself for it just because I knew it was a possibility, but I just I didn't actually think that possibility would come true. So,
2: wow, right? This is like a powerful description of what happened in the courtroom. I've seen it. I watched and I saw the you know the doubling over and the relative of Ryan's who flung the door open. It was his uncle, Kevin, who was detained because of the flinging of the door and the outburst. And apparently, he was actually put in a cell, like, very close to Ryan. And, oh, God, he, uh, I guess, describes, like, he could hear Ryan sobbing after that, which is not indicative, by the way, of innocence or guilt. Mm-hmm. But, you know, certainly sad for a family member mm-hmm. to be there. Wow, I guess they are trying to make a statement. Well, you know, I mean, he was yelling at the court, you know... Is it contempt of court? I'm not really sure at the end, but, you know. It's up to the
4: judge, right? It's his courtroom. It's
2: totally up to the judge of that case. I also wanted to know, you know, Janice was describing, like, the scene, and Ryan described how he felt, but I was curious, what was Janice's perception of how Ryan reacted to the verdict?
1: I was very close to where he was, but it was hard to see him because when you're in the gallery, there, the defendant and all of the. Lawyer's backs are pretty much to you, and so I did get to to see him bend over and and kind of clutch his stomach and put his head down on the table and just be sobbing. And I remember him kissing his wedding ring as he shook. He was shaking uncontrollably when he was convicted, and he was pleading with the judge to and saying. I didn't do this. I I would not hurt my wife. I love my wife. And it was interesting that he still used present tense. He didn't say I loved her. He said, I love my wife. I would not hurt her. And he kept shaking his head side to side. And it was a powerful, awful moment for the people who were in that courtroom because it was filled with Ryan's supporters. It was heart-stopping.
2: Super interesting about the tenses to me as well, because I've heard a lot of people speculate like the, the Scott Peterson interviews, he would say things like, I loved my wife. She was a good person. Whereas Ryan's like all present tense, even though she is deceased. Mm-hmm. So this is a powerful moment, and what happens right after is not the norm, just so you know, but the judge in this case proceeded with sentencing immediately.
4: Was that because there were sentencing guidelines he so had to abide by?
2: Yeah, that's because the only possible sentence for this crime of murder was 15 to life. So there wasn't really the need to have the time between verdict and sentencing and make a decision. He was bound by the law and the statute on this. That's a big range. It's a huge range, isn't it? We don't usually see that. No, in Jersey, I think it's usually like 25 to life, 30 to life. Right. I mean, it's different in every state, and every state has their guidelines, but I thought the same thing. I was struck by that. The judge asked Ryan if he had anything to say, and again, like Janice had pointed out, he said, I love my wife. I would not hurt my wife. Sarah's family left the courthouse after the verdict. They didn't stay for sentencing, maybe because they knew, maybe because they were just done anyway. Ryan was sent back to county jail and stayed there for a few days before being transferred to the Correctional Reception Center in Orient, Ohio. Most inmates stay there for a few weeks when they're, you know, being transferred to their permanent placement. Interestingly, Ryan has wound up, he might have gone to another uh, correctional facility, but he's back there now. Meanwhile, at this time, there was a lot of publicity surrounding the case, with a lot of people feeling that justice was not served. A lot of people felt that Ryan was not guilty and that he was wrongfully convicted. At the same time, Sarah's family stayed quiet. They were pretty quiet throughout. but. While Sarah's family stayed quiet, the publicity around Ryan, you know, being wrongfully convicted was kind of picking up and free RyanWidmer.org was established. So I know within the first two days it had something like 14,000 views and like within a month, 100,000. So I'm sorry, you you
4: know about it today? The website is no longer active, but it did have links to Ryan's GoFundMe and that is still active. And Ryan supporters also created a Change.org petition, and the goal of that petition is to urge the Warren County prosecutor and the Ohio Attorney General's office to turn over genetic material for testing. And to date, they've raised close to $2,500. Wow, that's, that's impressive. Okay. And there's also a Facebook page, which you could check out, of course. So it seems like, you know, although not as active as it once was, Ryan still has some support out there. Yeah, well,
2: of course, the momentum is always high when it's, you know, following mm-hmm. uh, a conviction. But we're talking about over 10 years later. So it's good that there's still publicity. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess that depends on which way you feel about the case, to be perfectly honest. So after this, some jurors spoke to the media. Some were very outspoken, actually. One juror, Raymond, had a lot to say. He revealed that jurors made a lot of inferences, such as that Ryan was controlling and uh, oh gosh, Sarah's nails were made of acrylic, so they could not produce the type of scratches one might expect if someone was struggling.
4: Is that even true? do we know? That her nails were acrylic or if acrylic doesn't cause scratching? I mean,
2: I don't think yeah, that okay. I, I don't think either is a science here to be perfectly honest. I don't do I don't do my nails now okay. ever so, but I'm going to assume that any type of nail, acrylic or not, <laughs> sharp puts a scratch on someone if you're you know actually yeah. using it for that purpose. But this
4: was only like the first of many jurors that were going to be talking, right?
2: Oh yes, because another juror would come forward, Amy, with info that would change everything. In the meanwhile, Rachel Hutzel. Remember we talked about her earlier. She was the lead prosecutor or the head prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Okay. She went public and said some very not-so-nice things. Specifically, Rachel Hutzel went out to the media and revealed that pornography was a motive for Ryan's crime. And she also released a reenactment video of Sarah's possible death, which was a proposed exhibit. But Judge Bronson had rejected it. Is that even allowed? I guess it's... This is very controversial. Now, some courts allow it and some don't. This is like animations where they recreate things. Now, is it a science or is it an art? You know, this is why some courts will not allow it. You know, we talk about what's scientifically acceptable. So there's often like a Daubert or a Fry hearing, which are the hearings about, you know, evidence that's been well established Mm -hmm. in the field. These are not always well established. And I've seen a number of cases where Some form of this was allowed, but I have to say, I think courts are mostly still rejecting these types of recreations because they're not exactly scientific. And there was some definite public outrage over these things. And to be honest, I didn't even focus on this recreation of what happened to Sarah. I don't really see how they can recreate anything when they've not. They've given 18 different explanations. I will say I'm not comfortable. Like, was it in the are they showing her in the toilet, in the sink, in the bathtub? But I think what the bigger issue probably was is this pornography. Yeah, issue. I was just going to ask you about that. Well, we asked Ryan about that as well.
3: Yeah, she went out the day after the day when she they convicted me and said, well, we know why he did it because he was on a website called Adult Friend Finder. And yeah, I don't, I don't even know if she specifically said porn, but she specifically mentioned that website. Well, my second chair, Rob Dish, had called me and he said, no, Ryan, he said, I think we might have an issue. And I'm like, oh, yeah, what's that? He said, you know, he started explaining to me, like, the prosecutor sent over this porn stuff. So you're talking about how all this porn you've been looking at and this and that. You've been on this website called Adult Friend Finder. I'm like, no, nah, I've never, I mean, never come across that. So anyhow, he's like, Ryan, just tell us, you know, we'll deal with this. It's not a big deal. And I'm like, look, man, I was never on that website. I don't know, was never looking for people on that website, anything like that. I said, yeah, I've looked at a little bit of porn, but it's not like it's anything crazy. And he's like, he said, Ryan, and he just kind of kept reiterating. I'm like, look, man. Like, I don't know what's, you know, and I just was getting aggravated about it. I'm like, I don't see what the big deal is. I'm an adult, you know, whatever. And so I went into the office on that Friday, and he had stacks, maybe an inch or two high stack of papers, if if I'm not mistaken, and each paper had one single picture on each paper. So it was almost like they made it for effect to try to make it look as bad as possible. Well, the adult friend finder stuff, there was two things. That, at least the stuff that he showed me, there was a picture of my junk email box where the email was clearly bolded in black like I had never clicked on it. And then there was like an advertisement off of a page that they must have pulled and put that on a separate page. And so I explained to them, like, no, that's just an advertisement. But that Monday, they went in the judge's chamber. They brought in their computer person who's the one, their computer expert's the one who pulled it off. And Charlie, you know, look—they're just trying to use the porn to make him look bad and explain this, the Adult Friend Finder things. Uh, the their computer person said, "Yeah, there was some minor looking at porn, but nothing out of the ordinary." Judge said, "No, you're not going to talk about it."
4: So, Adult Friend Finder is still very much a thing. I just looked it up. Is it really? I would... yeah, it's still an active site. There are so
2: many layers of this oh issue. Oh. It's, a, it's a non-issue. It's a non-issue. Okay. This feels so desperate. Yeah. And honestly, it's not above board. I'm so glad. I feel like the judge, good call on his part. Like, he appropriately shot this down and said, you're not bringing this in as a motive for murder. And this was, she went out and did like a press conference and basically saying that, you know, he was looking at, A, he was not looking at adult friend finder that popped up as junk, which happens when people look at, you know, B- what is considered kind of standard pornography, and I'm sorry, but men, women alike, healthy, you know, married or not, looking at some pornography, I don't think indicates really much of anything. Do you?
4: No. no.
2: Nope. How many men or even more men, I will say, um, how many men would be really incarcerated <laughs> if they were convicted of a crime based on Just looking at pornography on a, you know, on on, on a once in a while occasion.
4: It's seemingly innocent until you're on trial for murder. And then everything you do is looked at under a microscope.
2: If the only motive you have for murder is someone once in a while looked at, uh, you know, healthy adult pornography, then you're desperate. The printing out everything on each individual page just to pile it up and make it look bad. I don't know. I I don't like the, this feels very icky. Yeah. Well, the judge clearly agreed. I'm glad, but then she goes out later on and, and puts this out to the media, which seems very unethical to me. Yeah. Furthermore, use, she's not just using, you know, emails. She's using emails from your, your junk email, which you have not read as some type of evidence of motive. This is just not a, again, this is unethical. Mm-hmm. And again, glad the judge did not allow this. <laughs> Ryan's lawyer at this point, you know, Charles Rickers still believes Ryan is innocent and he filed a motion for acquittal and a new trial, although he knew it was a long shot. Lawyers will do this. It was an eight page document and he argued that the evidence against Ryan was totally insufficient and someone was about to come forward and help Ryan in a major way.
0: After Ryan was found guilty and sent to prison, one of the jurors, who definitely Believed in Ryan's guilt, contacted me and told me about the out of court experiment done by one of the jurors, who then related that experiment to the jurors. That was where this woman took a shower, then stepped outside the shower to see how long it would take her body to dry off. And uh, she reported her results to the jury. And once we found that out, well, then we interviewed the jurors and had several of them give us affidavits, one of which said that they would not have found Ryan guilty but for that information by the juror who conducted that experiment. So that probably contributed also to the verdict.
4: For our listeners who may not know legal terminology. An affidavit is a legal document. It's very similar to a witness's sworn testimony that you see and used in a court of law. It's essentially just a written statement that formally legitimizes a claim. So why is this not okay? Because jurors are only supposed to decide a case based on the evidence that was properly admitted at trial. When jurors go outside of that evidence and conduct, say, their own investigations or their own experiments, that taints the process. Absolutely. And jurors are instructed by the judge not to do this kind of thing. They're explicitly told not
2: to. Exactly. This was a juror that the defense almost got rid of, by the way, during voir Seems like the jurors had a lot of action in this Mm -hmm. case. After Rickers received this information, he crafted a four page addendum to this motion to dismiss. Basically with the affidavit from John C. explaining that jurors were conducting their own experiments. One came in and said it. A couple others did it. But what's really interesting is that the juror who came forward, John C., he really believed in Ryan's guilt. And so he didn't want to do any interviews or anything like that. He just thought that the verdict was reached in the wrong way.
4: Wow. Good for him. Was he in law enforcement or anything?
2: Not that I know of. So I thought the same thing, like, kudos to this guy. You believe in his guilt, but you, you know the rules. Like, mm-hmm. we weren't supposed to do this. And he came forward believing that, you know, justice wasn't served. And so I, I actually, you know, I also applaud him for doing the right thing here. In addition to the motion filed by Charlie, Ryan would also need appellate attorneys because he's going to appeal the verdict. But the criminal attorney who represents you at trial typically moves on after and passes the torch, so to speak, to an appellate attorney. And there's many reasons for this. Trial attorneys have specialties that are different from appellate work. You know, appellate work focuses a lot on constitutional issues, whereas trial lawyers are courtroom almost performers in some ways and focus more um, on the criminal trial at hand. And oftentimes during the appeal, the claim is made of ineffective counsel. Which is a hard argument to make if the defense counsel is making the appeal. It's
4: right? usually not even true. It's, but it's a go-to every <laughs> time, is. so you yes.
2: have to. It's a go-to because it's what's available always to criminal defendants. And they can't hurt
4: the try for it. Absolutely.
2: Mark Godsey and Michelle Berry took on his case as appellate lawyers, primarily with Michelle Berry at the helm. My name is Michelle Berry. I am an attorney based in Cincinnati, Ohio, and my focus is appellate work um, and post-conviction claims. And I specifically deal a lot with people who claim that they are innocent or wrongfully
1: convicted or something went fundamentally wrong in their trial you know, some evidence was withheld or there was another major procedural error or even prosecutorial misconduct.
2: And while she's serving as a point person on Ryan's appeal, her husband, Mark Godsey, is also representing Ryan. And Amy, I think you know his work.
4: Absolutely, Megan, because I use his book several times in my wrongful conviction classes.
2: That's right. Okay.
4: Well, Mark Godsey, he's one of the leading scholars in innocence work. So he's an attorney and an activist for you know, people who have been wrongfully convicted. So in addition to teaching at the University of Cincinnati Law School, he co-founded the Ohio Innocence Project and is the current director. And he also wrote a book called Blind Justice. A former prosecutor exposes the psychology and politics of wrongful convictions. Long title, but excellent read. I'll have to check that out. So Michelle and Mark were the first to visit Ryan at
2: the Correctional Reception Center where Ryan was transferred after his guilty verdict. And they told Ryan that they believed he was going to be granted this new trial based on juror misconduct. Now, there's juror misconduct, Amy, and we've seen it in several cases, but you don't always get an appeal because sometimes they'll say, just like with lawyers like yeah you know they did something wrong but it wasn't really that harmful it's it's what do they harmless call
4: harmless error thank you which came up a ton in direct appeal season 1 do you remember how often we talked about harmless error
2: i mean that was like the the whole gist of the appeal was
4: mm-hmm. yeah there was some harm but did it really did it really impact the outcome of the case would it have really changed that so basically when they're considering whether or not the case gets granted an appeal they're considering whether or not had it not been for this misconduct, would he still be found guilty? Is there enough evidence? And my
2: my thing about that, I don't I'm promise I'm not gonna get on a tangent here, but when they say harmless error, I always say harmless to, to who? who? Yes. All right, you remember, <laughs> fine. I'll stop it. It was more than just John C. though, Amy, because three other jurors signed affidavits echoing what he had said. That the air drying, you know, incident reported by other jurors absolutely influenced their verdict.
4: And this is good because the public sentiment was changing a bit because it seems like people, even though Ryan had supporters, they were still like 50-50 with people thinking he was guilty. Didn't most people believe that he should be granted a new trial? If I remember correctly,
2: about 70 to 80 percent of people believed that Ryan should be granted a trial. So this is pretty significant. All right, so what happened? I mean, you have affidavits, you have motions. This always happens. You have the appeals process. In late May, so it was about a month and a half after John C. and the other jurors came forward, Judge Bronson issued his ruling. Here's what it was. He sided with the prosecution on some of the main points. However, he agreed to consider the jurors' affidavits regarding the experiments. So basically, you know, that when when Rickers initially filed that affidavit saying there was insufficient evidence. Well, the judge said, no, we disagree. We think the prosecution had sufficient evidence. However, Judge Bronson was very concerned that the independent actions of these jurors impacted the way the jury considered evidence. So this was a win, really, for Ryan in some small way. Do we know what happened yet? Not quite. But Judge Bronson is still considering Ryan was now housed at the Warren Correctional Institution, where he was adjusting to life in prison, which is not easy. You know, adjusting to prison life when you've never been and when you've never been involved in the system or even when you have is very challenging. Mm -hmm. Ryan was receiving lots of mail, though, from supporters. He had, you know, I don't want to say like a fan club because that's inappropriate, but he had a lot of people on the outside that were connecting with him and trying to help him. I'm sure that helped him deal with the strains of prison. I think so. Yeah, you hear that with other people too, though. The ones that have strong support on the outside, you know, tend to do a mm-hmm. little bit better because they feel still connected. They mm-hmm. have family. They have visitors. And the ones on the inside who are completely isolated, it's much harder for them. By July of two thousand nine, Judge Bronson had made a decision. He filed documents stating that he believed there were external influences. And that this would entitle Ryan to a new trial. And so this is a very exciting time, obviously. So what happens now? Well, Ryan was transferred back to county jail. A lot of transferring, a lot of back mm-hmm. and forth. Jail to prison. Which isn't great either because he can't get settled anywhere. No, yeah. I mean, that's one of the hard things for prisoners who are moved around a lot. You know, They need to establish kind of like their routine, mm-hmm. their bonds, their group and whatnot. But in his case, I'm sure he was kind of happy because it meant you know, he was a new trial. So he's back at county jail. He has a $1 million bond set and his supporters are trying to scrape money, you know, to, together to get him out. But remember, there's also been a lot of money that's been sent. Fortunately, Judge Bronson decided to reduce the bond again. This happened last time. Mm-hmm. So he reduced the bond to $400,000, which I think was the exact same thing that had happened last time. And now his family was able to offer properties at, uh, you know, as collateral and Ryan was able to get out of jail. Ryan still faced a murder charge, though. And again, he had a lot of restrictions. Did he move to his old house that he shared with Sarah? No, because unfortunately, Jill, he and Jill, um, his mother, they had to sell that house. Remember, they they didn't have any money. I mean, they've already paid for a criminal trial here. So no, they had to sell that. So, So he moved in with her? He did, actually. So Ryan moved in. He kept a low profile. He couldn't really work. remember he was suspended. And I mean, this is a difficult situation. Criminal defendants in some cases really aren't able to, you know, gain employment. Ryan's mother, Jill, unfortunately, was having a very hard time. She was fighting for him while trying to figure out what to do with his home loans. The money was getting very tight. You know, he's going through a trial and he might have to go through another one. And you know how expensive that is. And unfortunately, Jill turned to alcohol to cope. So things were, you know, not going that great for her. Yeah.
4: Any idea how Sarah's
2: family felt about this? Well, you know, Sarah's family throughout this, Amy, has remained pretty quiet. They, they've always kept a very low profile. And Ryan kept a low profile when he was out as well. Ryan also got a new legal team, and this time from Cincinnati. So Jay Clark... Hal Ehrenstein and Lindsay Gutierrez. Amy, it's not always customary, as we know, to change lawyers, but if there is a loss, a defendant, you know, may want to seek outside counsel. And in this case, he's bringing in outsiders. So that's a good move, I would say. But do you know why?
4: Well, I'm also surprised, though, because his first legal team, they were they were a strong legal team. They were. It's not that he had public defender. So I was actually surprised to hear. They're from Cincinnati. They're not from Warren County. No, it seems like that county was very small and everyone knew everyone. And that may have clouded the waters a little bit. So maybe bringing in people who weren't the usual courtroom working group would be a good thing. So the courtroom work group, you know, there's kind of a myth of the adversarial system.
2: Yes, there are some trials that get really contentious. If you remember the Casey Anthony trial, Jose Baez, the defense and the prosecution, Jeff Ashton, they... Oh, yeah, they were not... Nice to each other. No, and it was real. It wasn't like for show. They did not like each other, and I think theirs was the definition of adversarial system. But in reality, we know defense attorneys, prosecutors, and judges in a certain district and certain courts—they work together all the time. Yep, they, they have to be less adversarial and more cooperative. Mm-hmm. So I think the feeling here was that. I know Ryan said that he thought Charlie did a great job. Everyone said that he did a good job, but maybe he didn't go for, let's say, the jugular. Mm -hmm. And I think they thought by bringing in outsiders, they don't care. They're not invested in this. They don't have to work with these people over and over again. They could be a little bit more ruthless.
3: Going into it, I felt more comfortable because they were just uncovering more things than Charlie had in the previous trial. And we're going to call them out a lot more for their uh, negligence and, and mistakes they made, not just the police but the EMTs, the doctors at the hospital that night, just shed more light on all that stuff. So and it wasn't necessarily that I was upset with Charlie, um or mad at Charlie. He you know, he even thought, you know, having a new set of eyes on it might be a good thing. So I just really liked because he was more of an a uh, I just got more of the feeling he was more of an attack person and no matter how good I think Charlie did, you know, he's in Warren County. So these lawyers are out of Cincinnati. So I, I figured they not, wouldn't have as much interaction with them. So, you know, they would give them a little bit more of their crap, you know, versus being like a buddy-buddy type thing and worried about what you're going to say to you know, upset them or something like that. So that was kind of my logic as far as wanting somebody from outside the area.
2: I think that just the overall feel, Amy, is that this is just a much more aggressive defense team. It sounds like It sounds like he's probably hopeful at this time. I think he was. I think he was more optimistic. And you know, what's nice, actually, is that, you know, he remained close with Charlie and Charlie was like, great. You know, if I couldn't get it done, like if Mm -hmm. you know what I mean, let's bring in someone else. You know, I think the overall feel was they're all working to, Mm -hmm. you know, get Ryan out. Well, the prosecution would remain the same. John Arnold and Travis View, and they were definitely pressing forward with trial two. But before this next trial, Amy, there were two scandals that would come out that would seriously threaten the prosecution's case. Next time on Direct Appeal, Ryan's new legal team gets aggressive and several scandals work in Ryan's favor. But would trial two have a different outcome? Direct Appeal Season 2 is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga, editing by Jose Alfonso. And special thanks to Janice Hissel, whose book Submerged was integral to this production. If you have a tip, you can submit through our website or by emailing us at tips at directappealpodcast.com. You can also help us out by following or leaving a review wherever you listen to
0: your podcasts.